Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, April 21st episode of Poets and Muses. We chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can follow us on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. Please also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the upper right-hand side of our Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. With us today is Ben McCutcheon, with whom I will be discussing his poem number 18, as well as mine, A Toast to the Functionality of Truthiness. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over all the poetry events taking place in the Valley during the week of April 22nd. On Monday, April 22nd, from 5 to 10 p.m., Savannah Lutman and Phoenix Fiber Events will be hosting their five-week Forever Fiber charity open mic series at Thirst Space, which is at 1028 Grand Avenue in Phoenix. Each of the next five weeks of events will be benefiting a specific charity. Signing up to get on the mic is between 3 and 6.30 p.m. From 7 to 9 p.m., Arizona Masters of Poetry and Rosemary Dombrowski will be hosting their Teachers Open Mic and Coaches Slam at the Coronado Phoenix, which is at 2201 North 7th Street in Phoenix. On Tuesday, April 23rd, from 6 to 8 p.m., Connect and Heal will be hosting its weekly poetry writing workshop at the Chandler Community Center at 125 East Commonwealth Avenue in Chandler. From 7 to 10 p.m., Richard Nyhill will be hosting his I Am Hologram open mic at Irene's Tap Room, which is at 1227 East Northern Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 6.30 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., King Kong will be hosting his weekly The Underground Experience at 2601 on Central, which is at 2601 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30 p.m. On Wednesday, April 24th, from 8 to 11 p.m., Poetic Soul Phoenix will be hosting its weekly open mic at Club Downtown, which is at 702 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 7 p.m. On Thursday, April 25th at 5 p.m., Dog-Eared Pages Use Books will be hosting its monthly open mic called Arts, Letters, and Cultural Event at 16428 North 32nd Street, Suite 111 in Phoenix. From 7 to 8.30 p.m., AZ Humanities will be hosting an event with Natasha Trethaway, Democracy and the Informed Citizen, at the Foundry Hotel, which is at 1100 North Central Avenue in Phoenix. From 7 to 9 p.m., Long Known Publishing will be hosting its weekly Phoenix Poetry Slam for those over age 21 at the Lost Leave, which is at 914 North 5th Street in Phoenix. Make sure to get there by 6.50 to compete. From 7 to 10 p.m., Teresia will be hosting her monthly The Renaissance Open Mic at Toso's Bar and Grill, which is at 2401 West Union Hills Drive in Phoenix. Signing up to get on the mic starts at 6 p.m. From 8 to 11 p.m., Quinton Oni will be hosting his weekly open mic at Joe Butts Coffee and Bar at 333 East Roosevelt Street in Phoenix. 
signing up to get on the mic starts at 7.30 p.m. On Friday, April 26th, from 12 to 2 p.m., Rosemary Dombrowski will be hosting right on downtown's 12th annual launch event and reading, which will take place at Changing Hands Bookstore at 300 West Camelback Road in Phoenix. From 6 to 8 p.m., Rosemary Dombrowski again and Nadine Lockhart will be hosting their monthly Phoenix Poetry Series featuring Chris Coggenos and Shantae O'Ryan of Caffeine Corridors fame. This will be taking place at the Fillmore Coffee Company, which is at 600 North 4th Street in Phoenix. And now we turn to our poet guest of the week, Ben McCutcheon. Hi, Ben. Hey. Welcome to Poets and Muses. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Please tell us a little bit about yourself. I am an Arizona native. Mm-hmm. I'm actually like third generation Arizona, oh. which is kind of rare. Mm-hmm. My great-grandfather worked on a cattle ranch out here. I went to school at Mesa, so I kind of grew up out here. Mm-hmm. I moved downtown probably five or six years ago. So, okay. Uh, it's been really interesting, five or six years. Downtown, as I'm sure you know, has changed so much. That's what I heard. I'm a transplant. Um, new, pretty new. But I keep hearing that. Yeah, I mean, it's a short amount of time that when I, when I moved down here, especially during the week, if you walked around, there's nobody on the street. And mm-hmm. there was a handful of really cool bars or mm-hmm. restaurants or coffee shops, etc. Right. But you'd go in and you would know everybody there. Okay. Because there was only, you know, a few thousand people that lived, like, in central downtown. So okay. now that is not the case. It's still a great community, but, you know, there's been so much development. Yeah. And so many things have opened up and so much housing has been built. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I really noticed that even within the last months that I've been here, I've noticed the change and the change in prices as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I used to have a place right on 5th Street that was just like, oh, wow. it was a total steal, beautiful mm-hmm. apartment, mm-hmm. does not cost the same amount anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a shame. And part of what I love about Phoenix and the Valley in general is the art scene and artists we are not known for being rich. Right. <laughs> so it's a little bit difficult, but I mean, I also find that there's a good amount of support for artists as well. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I love that Phoenix uh, supports like street art so well. Mm, so like downtown, yeah. you know, there's murals everywhere. I yeah. love that. I love walking around. I love that too. I love just running into some murals. Mm-hmm. And I finally found out because I was taking some pictures of random murals that were of the same style. I, I don't know if you've seen the guy... Basically, he paints people who have big heads, and they have disproportional limbs. And downtown, there's a mm-hmm. few. There's one on Grand. If you see it now that we talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to recognize yeah, it when I see yeah. it. Yeah, Let me know when you see it. I can tell you who the artist is now. <laughs> I'm very proud of that. <laughs> anyway, going back to you. Right. Sorry. Did you want to tell us more about yourself, or were you done? Did I interrupt you? I forget. Um, no. <laughs> I certainly didn't feel interrupted. Okay, um, no, I mean, that's, that's about it. It's, it's always a hard question. To answer, right? Like, tell me about yourself. Yeah, it's a lot, right? It's a catch-all. Uh, uh, like, very, very brief tangent. I was in San Francisco last weekend, mm-hmm. and uh, I went to this, like, couch surfing event, so we met up oh, with different travelers yeah. and stuff. And so I'm talking to this guy that's about to, like, sell all of his stuff mm-hmm. and go travel the world, like, with no end date. Um, and we were out pretty late, like, there's a good amount of, of drinks involved, and then kind of, like, towards the end of the night, he's like, I woke up one day, and I looked in the mirror, and I was like, who are you? 
Mm-hmm. And he was like, I realized that he didn't, I didn't have any idea who I was. He mm-hmm. was this successful like, Silicon Valley software engineer type. Mm-hmm. Had been objectively successful, but he looked at himself in the mirror and said, I have no idea who I am. Right. And then right. he went and sold everything. I was, I was like, God, that's just that's the coolest explanation. Yeah, yeah. And also he can afford to do that now. For sure. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> I, I wish there was a balance between right? the two. Right? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to just go? Uh, yeah, yeah. We all want to, believe me, there are days where I'm just like, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to get my passport and go. Mm-hmm. So. Going back to you, and I, I don't think we touch on how you became a poet. I like to know that. Sure. Like a lot of people, I started writing poetry when I was pretty young. Mm-hmm. I know like when I was a teenager, I wrote a lot of poetry. Mm-hmm. I mean, throughout my life, I've kind of just always written it. Uh, it's always been something that I do to try to deal with different you know, emotions mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. process things. Or really, it's just, you know, everyone kind of, I think, needs a creative outlet. And so this has yeah. been mine. Yeah. I started getting into slam poetry because I met you at the slam. Yeah. A little bit before I moved downtown. Okay. And... I've been doing that for a while now, actually, and that's been really interesting. I mean, pros and cons. It's I love that it's this performance art, so mm-hmm. you can you know really express yourself in that mm-hmm. way. And there's like some constraints, and everything has to be so well rehearsed. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a little bit of its downfall as well as there's some poems that I'll, I'll write. You know, I really want to write about this, but gosh, it can't just be it can't be a slam poem. Like it just doesn't work. You right, know? right. Which is What's wonderful about the Valley is that there are so many different open mic events, mm-hmm. and mostly, actually, they're not slam events. For sure. No, open mic's my favorite. Yeah, 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 me too. I mean, I go to the slam. I never do well in it. I'm, I don't have what it takes, I don't think. Some pieces, I feel like, oh, yeah, it's it, that's slammy, but I, I guess my delivery is not what what people like, so I'm like, whatever. Yeah, I mean, it's, slamming is, is a performance art. And then, it is. You know, there are so many variations of poetry. Like, you wouldn't take a haiku and try to make it into a sonnet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny you say that, because I actually do have haiku poems where the stanzas I had haikus. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it was because of the Phoenix Poetry Slam, because they, in uh, October, had the haiku death match. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've done those. Yeah, so... I've heard your poetry that are just right on slam, and your performance is great. And I've heard some poetry that is on the fence, could be either or, but mm-hmm. they're all very reflective. That is what poetry is, but some poetry, especially slam poetry, tends to be just very in your face, yeah. whereas yours are not necessarily the case. I think what you brought for us is on the more factual side, and it's also a more like a prose poet. Yeah, I've written this poem so many different ways, and I finally got it to somewhere where I felt I'm comfortable like doing this in a slam, mm-hmm. and it's also three minutes, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was a yeah. big constraint. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is, because I have some poems. I'm like, this would be perfect for a slam, except for the extra two minutes. Yeah, and then sometimes <laughs> it's like, well, maybe I can physically say this poem in three minutes, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, if I'm just rushing through everything, then... Yeah, there's no point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely interesting to go through these categories, whether you limit yourself because, you know, you want to do specifically a poetic form mm-hmm. or because you want to go the slam route. Yeah. So number 18 is what you brought us today. Would you like to read that for us? Sure. Okay. So this is uh, number 18. Fact. The city of Bangkok is the world's most popular international tourist destination. 
Over 20 million people travel there each year, more than Paris, more than London, more than New York City, and once I was one of them, my self-imposed mission to understand, to understand, and to drink my fill of Thai culture, and by the fourth day I was intoxicated by this living city which seemed to breathe with me and each one of its 14 million inhabitants. I felt so alive. On the fourth night, we walked through a red light district. Fact, Bangkok has three main red light districts and each one of them could be as big or as busy as Amsterdam's. We ducked into a go-go bar. It was Japanese-themed glass-bottom dance floor surrounded by a ring of fat, middle-aged tourists. These bulldogs in Hawaiian shirts slobbering over the fresh meat laid out before them. It was a squadron of young girls, all from this exotic corner of the world, shifting their weight half-heartedly in time with the omnipresent bass, the unceasing heartbeat of this living city. Their uniform was a four-inch miniskirt and a button with a number on it. Number 18 looked at me. She had jet black hair and fragile features in front of a jet black stare. She made unbroken eye contact and I will never forget her face. I felt uncomfortable. I asked my friend what the numbers were for. He said, quite simply, oh, that's, that's how you order them. I looked back at the dance floor. Number 18 looked right back at me and uncomfortable turned to nausea as my naivety shattered. You see, it is one thing to know that such terrible practices exist in the world, but it is yet another to find yourself drinking beer on vacation, right in the belly of one, looking at right in its jet black eyes. These men will order up the young woman of their choice and they will fuck her without ever knowing her name. They will fuck her without even knowing how to ask for it in her language. I will never forget the face of number 18, for in the abyss of her gaze there existed a vague sense of, of pleading, of asking for help, but I didn't know what to do. I ran, stumbled outside, puked on the sidewalk. Fact, the Thai government estimates that 40% of its sex workers are under the age of 20. My friend came outside, I yelled at him, what the fuck were you thinking taking me in there? He said, I'm so sorry, but you wanted to understand. And if you want to know how a living thing works, you must observe its skeleton. Fact, despite not making the top 25 for galleries, museums, or historical sites, Bangkok remains the world's most popular tourist destination. Fact, despite all effort to the contrary, I can only ever remember her as just another number. Thank you. Welcome. This is such a powerful poem. And when I approached you to read the poem for the interview, I had asked you a little bit about the origin of it. I would like you to tell us again about it. Sure. This poem's about uh, my first time to, to Bangkok, my first time to Asia. Mm-hmm. I had done some traveling on my own in the States, like I'd gone to a couple like different cities, maybe for a weekend or something, mm-hmm. and really fell in love with traveling on my own. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I'm gonna go to Asia. And I and I knew one guy that lived in Bangkok. So I was like, okay, that's someone that can, you know, show me around maybe a little bit. So I, I went there and this was I wanna say like twenty fifteen or something. Maybe okay, twenty sixteen. Okay. Yeah, pretty recent. And the first 
several days that I was there, I was kind of just like, I was spending all day exploring, going to different markets, going to different like bookstores, shopping, like what have you, uh, going to see like live music. And mm-hmm. I was really like, when I used the word in the poem, like I was intoxicated. Like I was in love with this city. I'd never been somewhere that was so like organic. Um, mm-hmm. Have you been there? No, I had a chance, but I lost that chance. Oh, I'm sorry. And <laughs> okay. uh, the piece comes off kind of like almost like this like hit piece against Bangkok. Like uh, it's it's a city that I, no, I think I, is very interesting. Yeah, I don't I don't feel it's that. I mean, you zeroed in on something on yeah, the belly of it for sure. Yeah, so that's exactly where I was going. So I, I'm like totally in love with the city. And uh, my friend that lived there, he had, he had lived there for a while, and I kept going on like, oh man, I'm really loving like. I'm, starting to, you know, understand more of this culture and mm-hmm. like, you know, I was just really trying to understand and he said, well, you know, and we'd spent the, the evening, you know, we were at dinner and having some beers afterwards and he's like, you have to go to Soy Cowboy, which is like this, uh, it's one of the red light districts in Bangkok. It's like this uh, long strip of uh, go-go bars, essentially. Okay. Um, what I thought were like go-go bars. Mm-hmm. And it's like neon lights everywhere. It's named after a a Vietnam vet, I think, is the story. Oh. It's like a like a American expat, which is why it's soy cowboy. Okay. Soy means like street, essentially. Oh, okay. It's like cowboy street. So we go there and um, we go into this this bar, and at first it's like you know it's just girls dancing, mm-hmm. and and I'm thinking you know I'm not a, a fan really of that type of entertainment in general, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that that was part of like the Bangkok scene, scene right? Yeah. So it's like okay. And I thought it was going to be more, you know, more similar to like maybe a strip club here or maybe like a cabaret or like I, I truly thought that it was more of like this performance type thing mm. that you would go see. And it wasn't until I started noticing some things and then I, I asked him what the number was for. And he's like, yeah, that's how you order the girl you want to go home with. Mm. Uh, and it's there's very few times that I can remember feeling like physically ill over just like the implication of something that like I'm realizing and it was this mm-hmm. like thing it's like I just paid these people for a beer I'm sitting in their establishment and it's like I had no idea was this such like a transactional thing mm-hmm. and it was so you know he explained to me a little bit more how it works which I really won't go into deep detail but it's like it's very systematic you know mm-hmm. it, it really is like you want this girl you tell them the number, and then you go negotiate price, and then you're you're off. It's it's like a it's like a a menu, mm. and it's just really like, I don't know. It was it was such a, a profoundly like disturbing realization of, of kind of where I was, mm. and you know shattered this this illusion that I have of this mm-hmm. you know kind of perfect you know, living, living city. Mm-hmm. And I did, I got physically sick. I like, threw up on the, on the street outside. Like, and we had, you know, we had to go sit somewhere and just drink some water. And he was like calming me down. Like, it was, it was really, yeah, it was very impactful. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to write about it, right? right. Um, not like immediately, but mm-hmm. poetry for me, and I think you can probably relate to this, is a way to kind of process your experiences. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, for me, it's like, you say you, you get out of a relationship. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, for me, I'll kind of maybe I'll write a poem, and I can sort of like encapsulate that experience, and and then in the process of writing it, 
kind of deal with it. Right. And so I, I really wanted to do that with this, and I I couldn't. I, I, I tried so many different ways, and so I was like, I don't know how to, like, get this across. Mm-hmm. And this, you know, that, that, I, that I shared was, you know, where I finally got it to a point where I was like, okay, I think this kind of gets across the feeling that I had. Right. While also being, you know, something that I can be proud of writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You definitely feel the progression, the build-up. It's very much a story poem, and it is shocking without necessarily using very shocking language. And I feel like we talked about using curse words, yeah. you know, previous to starting this podcast. And I feel like curse words serve a purpose when you use them right. And I feel like the three instances that you use, fuck, it was very meaningful. The first two instances were mm-hmm. very much denoting the transactional nature of what was happening. And then the anger that comes through with your third use of it. Yeah. So I, I really like that. You said this came through iterations mm-hmm. and you couldn't write this version right away. Did you start to write immediately afterwards or did it, did it take a while before you even started to write any version um, of this? I think the first time that I tried to write it was, it was probably like six months later. Okay. It stuck with me and I thought about it a lot, but I didn't really try to write. So at the end of this this Thailand trip, I ended up injuring myself pretty pretty badly, which is a long story for another time, but (laughs) I broke a couple vertebrae in my back, so I was, it it was pretty long, Uh, it takes a while to to heal, so I kind of didn't write anything, Um, Mm -hmm. it was about six months after the trip that I started to, and and even then, like, it's always been kind of, like, prosy, Mm -hmm. like, in a way, I almost didn't want to be artistic with it, or, you know, with the the language so much. Right, In some ways, there are instances where art can be exploitative. In one of the previous episodes, we sort of talked about benefiting from somebody's death. Mm-hmm. I feel like having an experience, whether or not it's positive or negative, you can always benefit from it for personal growth. Certainly, it's not always pleasant. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and this experience sounded like it was incredibly painful. I was initially like very upset that you know he kind of brought me in there and didn't really explain anything until I was there mm-hmm. and and like really in it, but. I mean, overall, I, I am really thankful that he brought me there mm-hmm. because it is something. And then when you when you do some more research on it, I mean, it's it's hard because it's not like these people. It's not like reporting into uh, a very like structuralized way, but it's a real like backbone of that economy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the tourism is centered around it. Yeah, Thailand is a destination for sex tourism, but yeah. from what I've read. Just over the years, what makes into the news is not even about these women, but young children that mm-hmm. being trafficked and being utilized as sexual bait for not just men, but yeah. mostly men. Mm-hmm. Also, Thailand seems to be the place that caters to all kinds of sexual tastes, mm-hmm. with many victims yeah. involved in the trafficking. And, and the fact that more recently... If you follow what's been happening in Myanmar, yeah, what's the other name for Myanmar? It was Burma. Burma, yeah, it used to be Burma. So Myanmar, yeah. because of this discrimination and the genocide side the Rohingya, of yeah. the Rohingya yeah. Muslims, I was reading that because they've been so marginalized, they've had to escape mostly to. They're mostly going to like Bangladesh. Bangladesh, yeah, yeah. to the west. Yeah, exactly. 
but because of their situation, uh, a lot of families, their girls are being trafficked. Mm-hmm. Thailand is also known for trafficking workers, like yeah. in shrimping shrimp boats. So both men and women are being trafficked and being used, and Rohingya, um, because of their persecution, is being caught up in that. Yeah, and Nepal as well. Also, a very poor, the mm-hmm. very poor in Nepal sometimes sell their, uh, especially girl children, to human traffickers in order for the family to survive. Yeah, that was actually as I was learning more about you know how things operated. And so a lot of the girls that work in these pubs or bars or you know whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. a lot of them live there. There's like little like live-in quarters, mm-hmm. or you know there will be like a little like dormitory. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them will come from in Thailand. You have Bangkok, and then you have some the islands in the south, and then there's like Chiang Mai in the north, like northwest. Mm-hmm. But the rest of the country is super poor, super rural, mm-hmm. and so you have a lot of these girls that are coming from other parts of Thailand or from right. like Laos or Myanmar or Nepal, like, and, it, and it really is like this thing where organized crime or the traffickers yeah. will go to the village and, and say like, "We'll give you some amount of money." And, right. And the police are involved. The government, I yeah, think. the government is involved. They get bribes. Mm-hmm. It's very much as you said before. It's basically part of the fabric of the culture. Almost mm-hmm. certainly not that America is cleaner because I feel like we hide it better because mm-hmm. there is human trafficking, both workforce as well as sexual workforce as well. Every time. I pass a massage parlor that has their blinds drawn, right. and most likely, it's one of those places where you can ask for or negotiate a happy ending. Right. And those people are most likely trafficked. And when you said that they have dorms, it's because they don't want them to escape. They basically yeah. control every aspect of their lives. And the same here. Whenever we see a bust, it's always they are being jammed into some. Unquote, unquote, dorm. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. Like sometimes it's this thing where they might go out to the village and say, "You're really pretty. I work for a modeling agency. Yeah, do you want to be a model in, in Bangkok?" And mm-hmm. um, they can actually end up in situations where they have a debt. So yeah. that So like they're crammed into these dorms and like forced to have this terrible lifestyle, and they're paying like fucking rent <laughs> to do it. Like it's yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, not really, but, you know, because yeah, yeah, they don't yeah. really see a lot of the, the money. But yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's it, it, they're, like, working off some debt, but it's, it's like... Usually the game, game, quote-unquote, is that, oh, we're going to pay your way to the big city or international workers, these yeah. false acts, these hooks, is that, oh, you, you have a babysitting job or whatever, we're going to pay for your way because these are very poor people, and then you owe us and we're going to take money out of each quote-unquote paycheck. Again, it's similar when you're talking about the modeling job. It reminded me of what I heard about the red light district in Amsterdam, which also involves a lot of trafficking, despite the fact that it's legal there. There's still a lot of trafficking involved, trafficking of girls who thought they were going to become professional dancers or models, and then their passports get taken away if they're foreign or identity papers are being taken away or they're drugged, you know, forced to be on a drug habit. Also, the laws, coming back to the U.S. a little bit, 
our laws still tend to prosecute the prostitutes, quote unquote prostitutes, whether right. or not they are being forced into it rather than John, so that it's very difficult for them to go to the police because they don't want to end up being in jail. And then on top of that, with the immigration situation, especially if they're being trafficked from other countries, poorer countries, then they feel like they have to choose either life of sex slavery or death. So all of this, yeah. unfortunately, it, it's not, Thailand is much more in your face. Yeah. But we have it here, we have even in Amsterdam where it's legal, it's still... I also read in Amsterdam, even though those sex workers, that it's legal, they're still being discriminated against, like they have problems taking out loans. But this was oh, 10 sure. years ago. Yeah. So it's still very much this tendency of looking down on people who use their body, even if there is the structure that exists that allows them to choose to. So, in your research, what else did you come across? There's a line in the forum that's like 40% under 20. And realistically, I I believe that stat was really under 18. I mean, technically still true under 20. But like you're saying, the the large portion are like under 18. A lot is trafficked. It's responsible for a good portion of the GDP. And that's not even counting, you know, and GDP being like kind of like unreported. So this stuff's all black market, gray market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I, I learned more just like how people have tried to quantify the impact, and really the only consistent thing is that it matters. Like it really is a big, a big portion of it. Um, mm-hmm. I had no idea until I started researching that Bangkok is the biggest tourist destination in the world. Yeah, like, those were really interesting facts. I mean, so I just. To go on a small tangent, yeah. so these are actual facts that you're pulling. Yeah, so the only one that I can say is that I wouldn't like be able to maybe like cite, right? As I talked about there's three main red light districts, and each one could be as big or as busy as Amsterdam. Those things aren't really like mapped out. The, the red light district in Amsterdam, from my understanding, I haven't been there, is that it's it's not enormous. No, it's not. Um, yeah, it's fairly small. Soy Cowboy, where where I went, was it's not enormous either. It's but it's it's like an entire city block. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's another one called Nana, I think. That's I've seen places where they say that it's the biggest in the world. They have like an indoor outdoor like mall. Uh, um, it's like it's like a giant thing um, that I've not been into, but I have walked past. So basically, uh, you can pick up your groceries and a hooker at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's like this wild place. And then there's uh, I forget the name of the other one. There's like the, the you know the old red light district. So that one is like I'm not sure, and I don't know if there's a really a way to measure it out or map it out. Mm-hmm. I've looked a couple of times because I was like I want it to be a complete fact. I think the the point that I'm trying to get to is that like Bangkok has multiple red light districts like that are all like visited very heavily and mm-hmm. are, are very big. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a, there's a fact at the end where not making the top 25 for galleries, museums, or historical sites. Obviously, that's a bit of an ambiguous mm-hmm. claim that really Bangkok is not known for its galleries. It has them. It's not known for its museums, even though it does have them. People don't go there to see the historical sites. There are, in Thailand, tons of historical sites, and I'm sure that that's some of the draw of people coming to Bangkok. But I looked up a bunch of lists, you know, top 10, top 20, top 30, top 25, mm-hmm. best cities for galleries and I mean Bangkok's not on any of those lists that that I found so it's like they are facts Mm -hmm. but it is a poem and so it's not a scientific paper so things like that I feel very comfortable kind of presenting it in that way Mm -hmm. but if it was a paper I don't know if I'd have work cited for a couple of these right right Um, no that's fine I just found it really interesting 
and great the way you weave those facts into your narrative and still have the metaphors and, and the poetic elements to it so that it continues to be a poem, it continues to be an art form, and it really hits us with its emotion from the build-up. And you had said that that was your first time in, in Thailand, so you've gone back since... Um, I, I have been back one other time, yeah. Okay. I was actually back in it was March of 2018. Okay. Uh, I went back with a friend of mine, really close friend of mine was taking a job uh, in a different state and so I wasn't going to, you know, realistically see him very often and mm -hmm. he had this time in between, he had just finished his PhD and then he was going to go, you know, do this consulting job. Mm -hmm. So we took a trip to, to Asia and he really, really wanted to go to Bangkok and I thought it would be interesting to go back. This trip, I mean, I was there for a, a little bit longer on, on this trip, um, the for, on the first trip, yeah. And then I had thought about it so much, so it would be interesting. And I enjoyed it uh, the second time, for sure. We walked through Soy Cowboy. I talked with him about this experience. Right. You know, so he was interested to see what it was like, mm -hmm. um, but he didn't really want you know, the full experience, so mm -hmm. to say. So uh, we, went, we went through there. Yeah, so I did, I did go back. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say it's, like, it's an interesting city to visit, for sure. Um, yeah, yeah, that's why I wanted to go. I have friends living there as well, like you, yeah. so, and I had an opportunity to really get an inside look, and I wanted to do that, um, but unfortunately. And since you said you, you've been looking up more information about the trafficking, and obviously you know quite a bit of it, have you done anything when you come back to protest this, to fight this too? Mm. You know, I wish I could say that I was like really out there doing, doing that, because it is something that I care about. Um, but I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm that I'm out there like actively, you know, other than you know, being anti it and maybe doing this poem. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not actively like protesting or you know maybe maybe fighting against it. I feel like this poem is incredibly important that you're reading it to a public audience to make them understand that this is a real thing. It's happening. It's happening to people, even though it seems like they're just people who are at the total opposite end of the world, it's happening. I'm really glad we're talking about it and also tying it to what's going on in the States because any place that has large sports venues like a Super Bowl will have a spike in trafficking, sex trafficking, because there's a demand, there's a peak in demand in that area. And again, it's mostly underage girls and they're not in charge of their body. They're, they're not the ones who are saying, oh yeah, I want to get, get into this. But because of the inequality existing in yeah. between the genders or among the genders, and, you know, mm -hmm. we're not just two genders. Right. There's just so much weight that somebody has to take on in order to fight that. But I, I'm really happy that you're reading this and making people aware of the problem. And if you want to fight it even from here, you know, from Arizona or from, you know, California is a big hub for trafficking. Yeah. Unfortunately. And there are other major cities and even, you know, Phoenix, because Phoenix does have, you know, major events, conferences, all of right. those things always brings a peak. So if there ever was, you know, if you ever find the time, you can definitely do something locally, even if you don't have the means to move to Thailand, you know, sell all your stuff, move to Thailand. And, right. And, and support those organizations. So it's still, it's, it's great that you're letting people know that this is happening. You talked earlier that a lot of the 
my poetry is more like reflective. Mm-hmm. And this one certainly is a, a, like a deeply personal poem, but it, it has the most prominent like social message. Like this is the poem where I'm really trying to share an experience, but also tell you something. Yeah. Well, I feel like that. And I'm, like, I'm trying to tell you something in all my poems, but I'm really trying to like, you know, it, sort of inspire. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. I do have uh, some things that I, I wanted to understand. Like, you call them bulldogs, the, mm-hmm. the older men sex horse. Why bulldogs? Is that just a liberal use of metaphor? Um, pretty much, yeah. I, I, it's, it's not necessarily, like, targeted, although there was a lot of, I want to say, British tourists. Oh, okay. And I think somehow this, I'm, I'm thinking of almost this Churchill-esque figure in this floral Hawaiian shirt mm-hmm. and just, like, I, yeah, and really, like, I did stocky, didn't, right? Yeah, I, I wanted to portray them in, in the way that I really feel about the people that are frequenting these establishments, is that they're as, as like an animal, almost. And mm-hmm. I have nothing against bulldogs mm-hmm, in general, mm-hmm. um, but I think that's why I went with, with like, that particular okay, word. Okay, okay. It has a pretty pejorative meaning, basically. Okay. And you had talked about later on that she had jet black hair, fragile features in front of a jet black stare. And I just want to clarify. So you basically were saying that she seems to have numbed herself. Yeah, it was like, um, so the girl that, that is the center of this poem, I really like can very clearly picture uh, the way that she looks. And it was like, she had these very, very dark, eyes mm-hmm. um, and it was like this kind of like I think I used later in the poem like the abyss of her gaze like yeah it was a bit like zoned out like kind of deep like hollow almost mm-hmm. um, someone told me actually uh, one time after I did this poem that that this like jet black line that, that, that there's it's maybe like a song or like another poem like something that uses that that line mm-hmm. and I don't recall what it was Good. obviously it was not in reference to that but mm-hmm. I I, I was told that that, that that is a reference maybe that, I, that I'm not even aware of. So okay. I don't know if you if you know that. Ironically, despite the fact that I'm writing a lot these days, poetry, I'm I'm not reading a lot of especially classical ones. So I imagine it's a classical, well-known poem that they must have been. It's either that or it's like a like a song. So I should look that up. It, it was. It, there's been one. Maybe I think there's been two people actually. Now that I think of it, that have that have mentioned, they've asked, like, if I specifically use Jet Black to refer to this creative work that I can't r- oh, recall. Okay. Well, if you find out, let me know. Yeah, Because we, we also post songs that are mentioned in the episode. Yeah. You said, it is one thing to know that these practices exist in the world as it's quite another to find yourself drinking beer on vacation right in the belly of one, looking it right in its Jet Black eyes. So she became a personification of all of yeah. yeah. So like kind of what we were talking about, you know, we we know that this type of thing happens mm-hmm. all over the world. Mm-hmm. And I certainly was not naive to that when I was there. Like I said, I kind of thought that this was more of a perform. I didn't realize that I was in the middle of, of it right then. Mm-hmm. So that so that line's kind of like it's very different discussing it or reading about it and then all of a sudden finding yourself like really right there. And then and maybe I should be saying like looking her, but it's it's kind of like it, this personification that the pronouns is a little bit difficult there. Right, but, right. But yeah, I mean, it's like it, you know, I'm looking at her, and she, you know, just kind of realizing what position she was in, right, and right. like what she kind of represented. Yeah, I mean, 
it seemed like right at this particular stanza, she became the symbol for it, basically. Yeah. The fact that this business would not exist without customer, without demand, and the demand for it, the fact that these people are choosing their own personal pleasure, satisfaction uh, ahead of actually their personal pleasure that comes from basically the pain of another person. Mm-hmm. That sort of complicit nature of what they're doing is why I chose my poem to, yeah. to read with yours. A toast to the functionality of truthiness, right. which I will read now. I'm not trained to appreciate people. I've been told by the actions of others that advantages must be taken, that generosity is better left to those who can still afford it in a world of hyperinflation. To step on the weak on the climb for higher ground and that you're a fool to do otherwise, though with words. The world is full of fairy tales, of ideals we've discarded in real life. Still, in the space between dream and wakefulness, sometimes I spot a glimmer of the exotic shape of idealism dressed to the nines. It disappears as I rub my eyes of the last residue of sleep, of fantasies of what can still be if our actions followed the directions of our lofty words instead of hollowing them out to remain in a world of blah blah where substance plays the minor role, subservient to the demands of looking the part with just a hint of truthiness, a token to buy our silent acceptance. I really love this poem. I Thank you. Like brought it, I wrote it down because I felt like, because I was reading it when you had sent it to me in the process of writing, I was like, I really want to dive in slow. Um, I really like the way, because you write with almost no punctuation. Yeah, I've kind of discarded punctuation over the years. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's nice. It's, it's actually one of the things I struggled with when I was sending you like a written version of mine is because I've always just spoken it. Right, and it was like written right. to be spoken. So it's like right. I had to like figure out where the punctuation was. Right. Since yours is written without it, when I'm reading it, I can kind of like explore and peruse it at my own pace. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed fairy tales. I like that the world is, is full of fairy tales of ideals we discarded in real life is one of my favorite lines. Thank and you. also this, is it Zaftig shape? Of idealism, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that was that was actually a word that I've not seen before. So I had to look that up, and I thought that was like such a perfect way to describe idealism. Yeah, thank you. I borrowed two words from celebrities who brought my attention, and actually, truthiness is Stephen Colbert. Okay, he made that word popular again. Apparently, it was a word that wasn't used some time ago. I forget when exactly it was popular. Zaftik is a Yiddish word that became popular, was adopted into English in the 30s, apparently, with some okay. other Yiddish words that are popular. It is from uh, Jake Tapper's article on Monica Lewinsky. Mm. And as you saw, the meaning Zaf in German means juice. Zaftik is, Zik apparently is like a, makes it an adjective. Like, Frotek okay. means to be strong. 
Zaftig means juicy or plump. I know a little bit of German, but not enough to understand yeah. exactly. So I need to look that aspect up as well. And a lot of Yiddish has Germanic roots because Jewish culture have gone to Germany with the Roman Empire, so quite early in the. ADs. So there's a lot of back and forth in terms of yeah. influence. When I posted this as excerpt of this on Instagram, I referred to both Jake Tapper as well as Stephen Colbert, thanking them for these words. Because yeah. I love both words because of their irony. Well, the way that it's used is in many ways ironic. Yeah. And I, I like how the, the poem starts, it becomes almost more idealistic as you get on. And well, not really idealistic, but pessimistic yes yeah. <laughs> um but like when you start saying like blah blah and like this truthiness and this thing where it's not in, like this in this world of blah like it's not important for you to really describe that because we know like all you need to say is blah blah and we realize like how much of that exists around us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i was thinking about it quite a bit this hint of truthiness by our silent acceptance because it's, it's true and so much that we hear is especially the political climate is mm-hmm. is there some way where I can back up this ridiculous claim <laughs> even if it's just a little bit so that I can say that's what I meant yeah but the intention is much different right, um, right. so a lot of reaching going on yeah here. and maybe in our, in our current climate having even a hint of truthiness might not matter to some people, so... Yeah, well, actually, I feel like now the bar is so low that we kind of hang on to truthiness. I tend not to bring up 45. I don't you know, like mentioning his name, but after the first State of the Union, I remember the commentator saying, oh, he seems so presidential, blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, okay, the bar is so low. The bar yeah. is so like, low. Oh, my gosh, he actually sounded kind of like a president, kind of like a real grown-up. Let's hang on to that, <laughs> yeah. by our fingernails. It was really, for that reason, I, I write that, that truthiness, that, mm-hmm. you know, but also in, in our everyday lives, we hang on to the niceties, you know, and, yeah. and we forget the things that we want to say. We let us simmer down beneath, but on the surface, we want the appearance of nicety. We want politeness. I mean, I enjoy politeness. I think when it's genuine, it's wonderful. But if it's politeness just to hide passive aggressiveness, then it's really problematic. Yeah. There's a guy that used to live downtown, one of the mo- nicest, most enthusiastic people that I've ever met, and just always makes you feel like you're the absolute coolest person. Mm-hmm. And he used to hang out at the Lost Sleep quite often. Mm-hmm. And I was having this conversation with, with people and we, they kind of brought him up and they're like, yeah, we thought he was such a dick for so long <laughs> because they would say something and he'd be like, wow, that's really exciting. That's really cool. Tell me about that. And they'd be like, it's not that exciting, man. Like, stop being an asshole. Because they really, they couldn't even believe that his politeness was as genuine as it was. Like, he really thought, wow, that's awesome. Right, right. But they were so used to people being like kind of cynical that, or this false politeness. Yeah. That they thought he was just being a dick. Yeah, I, I really appreciate you bringing this up. I, I was also thinking about the same thing is that we're so used to this niceness being a cover, being a fakery, mm-hmm. that when we run into genuine enthusiasm, as you say, or genuine politeness, yeah. genuine gushing, even, the first thing we think about is okay, something's wrong. Yeah, you're like here. skeptical. What's going on? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and they were like, mm, I 
I don't know about that. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's really sad that we're, again, the bar is so low. <laughs> right. I really appreciate you actually writing down the poem. It's funny because in my day job, I'm like an analyst and I have a very like techie mm. day job, but outside of that, I really like to just write. And like I was saying, I really wanted to spend more time with your poem and I felt like writing it down, I feel more connected when I write something down. Yeah, it's a muscle memory. Yeah. And you force different parts of your brain to encode something into your mm-hmm. memory. So it's, it's really interesting. I do almost all of my slam poems by memory and it's, I always have them fully written down. By hand. Yeah, because it helps to memorize. Okay. Wow. I kind of thought that truthiness was like a play on words or kind of like a made up word, but you said it's an actual word that used to be a part of English that's not really spoken that much. So is there a different definition for it? I, I thought Colbert had made it up, basically. And then yeah. I looked it up and realized that it was a word already, and he just repopularized it. It's the quality of seeming or being felt to be true even if not necessarily true. So he brought it up in, yeah. in the exact definition as how I use it in, mm-hmm. in the poem as well. And I don't think when I wrote the poem, I knew this exact definition. And I was using his Colbert's implied definition of it. I'm glad he's also instilled yeah, in really us cool. facts. So yeah, it is really cool. In the world of hyperinflation, I was curious if you intended that to have like a double meaning or... Yeah, exactly. I, I am using an economic term both literally and figuratively. I guess more figuratively because I feel like, especially in this climate, as you said before, mm-hmm. I feel like we've lost value on decency and it takes more and more to make up for it. And so there's a hyperinflation on that. And I was thinking, actually, when I used that word to Germany between World War One and yeah. World War Two, Lots of hyperinflation. Yeah, right? and also... I think, was it Argentina or Venezuela that? Well, Venezuela is right now now is experiencing hyperinflation, but there was a very famous, I think it might have been Argentina, that was in the 70s that was going through so much hyperinflation. Mm -hmm. Both Germany and the 70s case, I think there were like people taking barrels of money to Mm -hmm. the bakery in order to buy bread. That image is lodged in my head. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I saw that image in like, school and like maybe in like middle yeah. school or something but there's like yeah. something so so odd to you because especially you know when you're younger I remember just having like a dollar bill mm-hmm. was like this really such like a precious thing you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then you see this barrel full of, yeah. of bills to buy bread and it's just like yeah, yeah. I, I, I have the same image that you're talking about and it's just like yeah. burned in my brain yeah and the funny thing about currency it's about the loss of faith in the worth of something because dollars have no real value yeah apart from their paper value which is not well depending on how many fees are left Right. You know, so again, the meaning, as you guessed, it has this idea of losing faith in humanity. It just becomes so pessimistic. <laughs> this particular problem. But I think it's important, and and I like the way that you've crafted like a personal connection to it. Thank you. I always appreciate when there's a personal element to mm. a poem. Yeah. And when it's not just because if you you could you could have written this poem strictly about this. Right. The erosion of, of truth and, and, mm-hmm. and all that. And it still, I'm sure, would have been good. But having 
this personal connection, I feel like I can connect with it more because mm -hmm. I am experiencing it through you reflecting on it. Your poem is more of a story poem than mine, even though I use a very personal entry point similar to yours. Mm -hmm. But I feel like these poems that grab us in where the audience basically goes along with you on the journey and kind of can imagine themselves on the same journey, they feel a lot more when you come to the point of impact. Mm -hmm. than if you're just sounding like you're standing over them and preaching over them, wagging your finger at them. Which, yeah, I, I definitely have some of those poems as well where I'm just like, you're so angry, I don't know. <laughs> and it's more, I guess, a meta, angry poem. <laughs> yeah. I remember there was a particular slam where there was a, a ton of poems focused on the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. yes. um, and that's one of the things that's fantastic about SLAM mm -hmm. um, is that it's such a good like platform to mm -hmm. talk about some of yes. these issues. But there were a lot of them kind of were more objective, like this is what we need to do, this is what's wrong. Right. Uh, and then there was a, a guy that went up and did this poem about being a black father in America yeah. and like how am I expected to raise my son mm. and talked about like his fears mm -hmm. and how it might not matter how good of a person he Mm -hmm. raises his son to be because of this environment in America. Right. And, like, that's the one that just fucking crushed me. And I was just like, oh, yeah. my God. It becomes so powerful yeah. when you see this personal connection. One of the best things that can happen to me, like, when I'm reading a poem or listening to a poem, is when I can feel a sense of profound empathy for yes. a situation that I personally, like, it's so far removed from me. I'm, right, right. I am not a black father in America. Yeah. But for me to feel this real, like, sense of empathy, mm -hmm. just incredible. Right. And it's one of the real powers of it, I think. It is, it is. Are you a father? No, no, um, okay. no I'm not. Um, but you can imagine yourself in the role of a father because you have the potential to be yeah. a father. In the show, so far, we've had two instances where we talk about police brutality, where we do talk about from different perspectives. One from uh, Lausha Clover, she talked about it from the perspective of a black mother who is awarded, quote unquote, millions because she had lost her son to an unjustified shooting, police brutality. And then also previous to that, uh, Bruce Black spoke about living through the aftermath as a kid of Dr. King's assassination and not knowing what's going to happen those hours after through the chaos, which we don't think about, right? Because we're so far removed both through time as well as through identity. Yeah. That feeling that the floor has just fell from underneath you. I never thought of it that way until I heard him talk about it, heard his poem referring to that. And then you can logically think about Oh, yeah, that does make sense, that mm -hmm. the rationality behind it. Yeah. And it's not like you can ever fully get it, right? Like, you, you can't, because, well, you is, know, I'm not in that situation, so I, yeah. I would never want to presume that I will ever fully get it, but to, yeah. so you're saying, get like, close. yeah, to, to be able to, to, to put me into that mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and to think about it from a we are all people we have the potential to become parents. We care about people around us. Mm -hmm. And to think about these other people that we might see as so foreign also feeling the same thing. Yeah, we share these capabilities of feeling the same thing and, and about the same matters. What it's like to lose a child. I have recently interviewed a veteran about her experience with police brutality. 
and she had another poem that was less personal and also on the same topic and I said you know I really want your experience personal experience on this because it's important to realize that even though I don't know if you're familiar with the history of African-American veterans being lynched after they come back from service no. and that was happening especially after World War II I was reading up on it a little bit it's it, horrible yeah to have served your Fuck. country that's so bad and come back from World War II survive war and because of prejudice, getting lynched. Unfortunately, it seemed like from the reports I was reading that it stopped by the beginning of the 60s. But this African-American veteran that I interviewed, the police attacked her. And she served our country. She was willing to die for our country. And it's just so heartrending. We already know that veterans face neglect when they come back because the system is not... I don't know, there's not enough resources fed into the back end of the system. Plenty of recruiting, but what happens when they come back? But then this point to case of because of her skin color, she has to face this. Or earlier, because of people's skin color, they face death, despite having survived the war. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to that, definitely having a personal injury does make an impact. I take poems however they come to me basically I'm like okay you want to give me the poem that way I will write it this way and I kind of write stream of consciousness Mm -hmm. in many many ways and sometimes I go back and edit sometimes I don't but this I actually started out because somebody was nice to me and for some reason I guess because I didn't have enough sleep so I felt depressed or something (laughs) I thought about this particular poem I thought about that cynicism of questioning people being nice what ulterior motive of people being nice yeah so it's like why is there such a cynicism and also some of the traumas I've experienced made me feel like the world is trying to tell me that you just cannot afford to be this nice yeah, you've not been trained. You've been told by the actions of others. The yeah. appearances must be taken. And I, I also feel like, surely there are people who can afford to be nice. And who are nice, which we appreciate, but sometimes you wonder if they were in a situation, you know, in this veteran situation, or in this girl situation, this, 18, this underage girl who's being trafficked, sold for slavery. Can they afford to be nice at that point? At what point... Do their politeness, do their their niceties fall away from them? Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, there's certain people or certain situations where it's very, very easy to be nice, but it's yeah. When when do you stop? Yeah, it's like can you picture yourself having no money, having no means, having doors always slammed in your face for something that you can't do anything about? What would you do with the ambition that you have? What routes will you take? Will you always go the legal route? Will you always go the polite route? Will you always go the moral, ethical routes? Mm-hmm. What steps will you take? Funny enough, another episode where I talked with a 17-year-old, mm. we also talked about that a little bit because some communities are forced into choosing non-legal routes for survival. I don't know if you saw Moonlight. No, I haven't. Okay, well then. I can't talk about it. I don't want to ruin it for you. You have to see Moonlight. It's right. it's slow, but it's really it's really good. It's really poignant, and it talks yeah. about that. The movie know. that I've wanted to see for a long time, but it's it's also one of those movies that I feel like I have to really be like ready for this experience. Almost, yeah. you know, you can never be if it's, ready. If it's <laughs> like if it's Tuesday night, like had a long day, and like gonna yeah, you know, yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely it's a hard movie to watch. There's a lot of positives about it, and it gives you a chance to see people and what makes it real and what makes it heartfelt is that it's not just black and white in terms of characteristics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just oh people are good or bad. You know, right. like, for like the not a superhero movie. Yeah, that's always my favorite is when the characters in a movie or or, or book are not just oh, this is a bad guy, this is a good guy, when it's like, this person is doing this for this reason, but they're misguided, but they don't know, and like, it's, right. they don't have these like different facets. Because I, I truly believe that in general, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people are just trying to get by. Yeah. And yeah. I think that there are, you know, as we've talked about, there's a lot of evil in the world, but there's so much good, and there's so many people doing things for good reasons mm-hmm. that I think hard to characterize characters as just evil or not yeah there's unforgivable things that people do i think there's a lot yes. of them and those yes. like yes this does not matter mm-hmm. your reasonings but like there's i don't know i just i always believe in the good of people while trying not to be naive about the bad yeah it's a hard balance right yeah because sometimes you see some horrendous things like what you went through in thailand and then you kind of question that and your balance it's like an old-fashioned balance when you move the a little bit yeah. to one way or another. I kept trying to think, like, how can these guys that are in these clubs, like, how can it be enjoyable? Like, how are they enjoying this? And then you, you kind of talked about, um, I, I don't think that they are viewing these girls as people. Yeah. And I, mean, I think that that must be the only way that they can rationalize, like, the complicity that they have. I, I, which is less excusable. Like, it's super fucked. But it's like, I feel like in their head, because this is like, I was talking about, like, not even knowing how to ask for their name, like, it's this, it's such a, like, small, like, they're not thinking of it as this is another full human. Yeah, there's no true gender equality, so certainly that plays an aspect, and then the difference in race plays an aspect, mm-hmm. the fact that they can't communicate. Yeah, plays probably an makes aspect. it easier for yeah. them to, yeah. um, what's the opposite, objectify, not, not saying, like, objectify, it's like, a, it's like the, the opposite of anthropomorphizing something oh yeah yeah dehumanizing dehumanizing yeah basically yeah i think that's the best word we have rendering people into beasts into less than human there is a scale at uh, the organization that looks at the steps that go towards genocide and one of the steps is dehumanizing talking about people Mm. in terms of animals and also vermin you know the the smaller the, the way that we dehumanize with comparing people to disease. We have live examples, you know, they're criminals, they're rapists, and, you know, it's yeah. and like, yeah, not really. Most likely they're escaping the <laughs> murderers and the rapists and their children. And I feel like if you were to go back and interview each one of them, they will have a different story to tell as well. And it's important to learn those stories because it's not always one particular way of seeing it. And it's very difficult to keep your eye on the humanity of somebody that you truly dislike for one reason or another. Well, and I think that's maybe why, you know, I called these guys bulldogs in my my poem, right? It's like I was kind of doing that to them. Mm. Yeah. Because you want to emotionally distance yourself from them, right? Because they yeah. can't, you can't be of the same species. You can't, you just can't. How can we do this to each right. other? Whereas in some ways, every day, as you said, people are just trying to survive. And in their survival, in their struggle to survive, 
and sometimes depending on how much they struggle to survive, the willingness to do more horrendous things to each other becomes almost more likely. There's a correlation, I would say, not a straightforward correlation, not a perfect correlation, but there is some kind of correlation. Anyway, at the risk of going even longer, despite the fact that we're having an incredibly interesting conversation, (laughs) we unfortunately have to kind of stop here. So let me just conclude by asking you, we talked a little bit about your, where we, people can see you. Mm -hmm. Where do you go? I haven't been as active lately. I've been going back to school and working full-time, so I don't get to really go out that much during the week. But my Instagram is Ben Does Poetry. Oh, okay. So, very easy to remember. Okay, cool, cool. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you. And that concludes our Sunday, April 21st episode of Poets and Muses. Please follow us on SoundCloud, Instagram, as well as Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at the upper right-hand side of our SoundCloud Poets and Muses page. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.